0: Making Up Space is proudly supported by Cold Comfort, the ice cream of champions. Handcrafted with local, organic, fair trade, and recyclable ingredients right in the heart of Victoria. (coughs) Vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, and sugar-free options are available. Stop by the small, independent ice cream company with a conscience. Visit them online at www.coldcomfort.ca.
1: You're listening to Taking Up Space, CFUV's intersectional feminist podcast, and I'm your host, Anne Bernice Thomas. In this series, we feature unheard and marginalized voices as folks from the community speak up and speak out about key topics that matter to them. This episode features conversations on personal space, body autonomy, and consent. While discussions about consent and autonomy are becoming increasingly prevalent in feminist spaces, it's important to include marginalized folks who have to fight harder to maintain their own bodily autonomy in these conversations. In our panel, we chat with a few folks who make and have made their work through advocating consent. Before we begin, I just want to add a warning that this episode deals with mature content specifically revolving around sexual assault, so listener discretion is advised. Let's get started. Thank you all for joining me for this episode of Taking Up Space. Our guests today are Melanie, Quinn, and Tiffany. Please go ahead and introduce yourselves.
2: Hi, um, I'm Tiffany Taylor. I'm a former sex worker and current gender studies student here at UBIC.
3: My name is The Velvet Unicorn, or Melanie, and I'm a burlesque performer and activists hi i'm quinn
4: and uh, i use they them pronouns and i work at peers victoria um, which is an organization that supports current and former sex workers
1: awesome so in your lives you've all taken on work that involves either advocating your own body autonomy others rights to their own body autonomy or both so has body autonomy always been an important issue in your life What made you realize that autonomy is something that is important to you? Let's start
2: with Tiffany. I got into sex work when I was 19 and that was... I remember that being actually a very powerful moment even though you're kind of socialized to believe it'd be this really like like volatile terrible thing but yeah I remember being like this is my body and I can choose to be Super sexual if I want to, or be like a born again virgin if I want. And I can choose to use this body to make money, to support this life that I want, to travel, to do whatever I want. So I guess that was a pretty powerful moment for me. I think that the issue of bodily autonomy as a woman was kind of the first feminist issue that I really cared about. Mm -hmm. I lived my life for so long, growing up, having my body kind of invaded by mostly men, but just people in general. So then when I learned about this feminist thing, I'm like, wow, I can say no, and, like, that's totally
1: valid. What about you, Quinn?
4: Yeah, I feel like I'm not sure when um, the concept of body autonomy first came to me, but I think lately I've been thinking about it in my personal life as related to gender autonomy or, like, gender self-determination and, yeah, just, like, growing up socialized as a girl and being like that actually doesn't work for me and i can actually decide what works for me and so right now that looks like being non-binary
1: melanie do you want to chime in
3: for me (laughs) uh, body autonomy kind of became an issue once i realized just how disconnected i was from my body and that i could even have ownership over it i was really raised and encountered a lot of people that made me feel that my body was not my own and so i actually believed for a really long time that my body was the property of men and that they were entitled to do whatever they wanted to and that on a very real level that I was there to serve their needs above mine and it took me actually seeing a burlesque performance to be like wow like that woman is owning her body and I don't know how to do that but I'm going to try to (laughs) get into that field and I knew that that was something I needed to do even though it terrified me. And if I can just add on something um, in terms of like the journey and taking a, a lap dance workshop and realizing that, you know, there are rules um, with lap dancing. And I think that is something within sex work as well that people don't really understand in terms of the amount of power that the woman can hold. And specifically with the lap dance workshop that I did, I was told, you know, I am in charge and that. The person that I'm giving lap dance to, they are not allowed to touch me. They're not allowed to move. I'm allowed to touch them. And if they do violate any of these things, like the dance is over. And I kind of had this epiphany moment of like, if I was told these rules when I was 12 years old about interacting with men or people in general, just how profound that would have been for me. And so it's, yeah, it's really interesting when you look at it through the lens of, of sex work or just... Yeah, taking back that power. Yeah. Uh,
2: And I think that's also why you see a lot of, like, former and current sex workers ending up being sex educators is because you become so radical in the topic of consent because you're so used to navigating it with so many people in so many different scenarios.
1: Amazing. Uh, So we're talking about autonomy, and there is so much that is encompassed in that conversation. But is there anything that stands out to you as really important to bring up when talking about autonomy?
3: I mean, I, I'm going to put this on the table. It's kind of heavy for one of the first questions. But I feel like for me talking about rape culture and personally, I grew up in Toronto, Ontario. And I feel like the amount that rape culture was deeply ingrained into me to not even... Being aware of it, like just fully accepting it and thinking like, oh, this is what happens when, you know, you go out and you drink too much, like they are allowed to do that. And having no concept that there was anything wrong that was happening and completely being disassociated from my body to not even feeling any of these things because it was so deeply traumatic and I think that people have all these I feel like the media not people um projects all these stereotypes of like oh like you're gonna get raped or assaulted by that man down the alleyway that you don't know but my reality has been like it has not been my like strangers that have sexually assaulted me it's been partners it's been good friends and i feel like that is something that needs to be talked about and can also be something that's extremely hard to accept because those Mm -hmm. are the people that you trust and those are the people that you don't want to accept that reality especially if it's a partner that you're deeply invested in and you've been with for a really long time and coming to realize the implications of that and then what that actually means and then in terms of if you need to get the police involved like how emotionally um, almost dysfunctional that can be for the healing process because you're you still love them and i mean i still have so much love for people that have um assaulted me and and it's something that i think is really misunderstood within our culture and especially through law enforcement and they kind of see issues as being black and white when it's really like this big crazy ball of gray and deeply rooted trauma and i feel like Trauma can make you do things that, you know, you stay in relationships that you would not want to stay in because you, you feel like there are no choice or really there's no support systems within our culture to help facilitate this. So.
2: And there's often like gaslighting too and other abuse tactics that kind of follow with sexualized violence as well, mm-hmm. which makes when you're trying to come to terms with being a victim of certain things, you really question yourself and that can be traumatic as well. It's like re traumatizing yourself. And it's not just your abuser who's continuing to abuse you, it's the entire society victim blaming you and like going to the cops and hearing that it was your fault or having them ask what you're wearing, you know?
4: Hmm. Yeah.
3: Or I even had a police officer tell me, oh, we've looked him up and <clears throat> we've looked at his Facebook profile and he doesn't look like he would be dangerous. <laughs> And so, and that was even a female officer that said that to me. So, I mean.
2: Like, what does dangerous look like?
3: Yeah. Right? And I'm like, do you know how much abuse he's been through? Like, do you know his history? Because you can just look at a Facebook profile and think you know somebody. And I mean, you can know certain things, but I feel like people that are really good at manipulating and... Are you know the people that are really out there to violate? Like they're not gonna post that <laughs> mm. warning, just so you know. Like
2: that's not how it works. Yeah. And we're starting to see so many men come out who are presenting themselves as these hyper liberal feminist allies, and then we find out what these terrible things they're doing. Mm. You know, so like who do you trust?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: That's very true. Oh, what's his name? The like, the CBC guy?
4: Mm, yeah.
1: He took, in, in, like, university, he was, like, one of the only men, like, the women's studies course. Yeah, he took, like, a women's studies course and learned, I guess, about, like, how, like, women think and quote-unquote and was like, yeah, I don't know, it's interesting that, that they made her stay educated, I guess. But then, even then, I would say in this discussion of rape culture, there's still so much ignorance around it and what how dangerous ignorance is as well yeah off that i was just gonna
4: say like and when men and like masculine folks are like expected to be a certain way in the world and like grow up in rape culture like it's not also not surprising to hear that to me to be like this person went to a women's studies class when the dominant culture like yeah supports rape Mm -hmm. and then i guess also um yeah, thinking about rape culture and that, like, colonization is a root cause of rape culture. I guess I was just thinking of that in relation to body autonomy and how, yeah, certain bodies are seen as less valuable, racialized bodies, and that, like, violence against Indigenous women and girls is the start, has been since the start of colonization because of ideas around people's bodies and that yeah, men have like an entitlement and power and control over certain bodies.
3: Yeah, yeah, I mean like I was looking up some statistics last night in terms of marriage and how rape was actually excluded from if you were married to somebody that was wow. your, your legal right. And it wasn't until like the 70s that they actually started having a legal system for, and it, it was really interesting because they would just re- omit it from like um, they'd be like, oh, you're like, you're allowed to be married. And then they started removing rape from that. But like from a very like fundamental level, marriage always included that as part of it. So it's interesting to think just the fundamental Mm. establishment of marriage and how that that is part of it. And then now we're almost like trying to omit it. But then we still have this foundation of marriage, like on a global context. And so, yeah, it's just, and so it was 1983 in Canada that that finally changed. And when you think about, you know, the older generation, like, having that as law and really believing that. And, I mean, I think it's great, amazing that it finally got changed. But on a very real level, it's like thought processes don't change as quickly as the laws do. And then there's, of course, the people that are like, oh, well, the government decided that this was a good idea. And, like, they don't know that I'm entitled and da 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 and just... It, um, I mean, I think it, I think once you have something that is legal, that can really stick a lot longer than when you do finally get the laws changed, and mm. it can be hard for people to change, it can be hard for people to accept. And then I also think, even the awareness like, I wasn't even aware that that changed or that that was part of Canada until maybe a year ago, and so how many other people don't even know that actually nope that was uh, that was law here in Canada and then you look at the global context and just how like how many of those laws still haven't changed mm. and so
2: and then where are we learning about consent and what are we learning about consent? because like what you said like that's about consent being seen as like irrevocable but now we're seeing like we're trying to include this conversation about, well, when can you consent? Like, if, if you're too drunk, you can't consent. You know, if you're under a certain age, you can't consent. If the person is, a, is in a position of power over you, you can't consent. But I feel like there's so many people who just don't know
1: that. Very powerful answers. Thank you. All righty, so we're going to take a break. And when we get back, we'll continue the conversation on how conversations on consent and autonomy show up and play out in real life. Coming up next, the CPV's production team has put together a step by step guide to understanding, asking for, and using consent. That's in a moment. Stay tuned!
5: With the influx of sexual assault survivors, sharing their stories, and the increased public attention being paid to such cases, the topic of consent is being discussed on a totally new level. It is a more complex issue than many assume, and a widespread understanding of it is essential for the safety and well-being of people of all kinds, of every age, identity, relationship, profession, and social position. UVic's Anti-Violence Project, also known as AVP, which can be explored at antiviolenceproject.org is a resource for detailed explanations of consent and related concepts. They are hosting workshops in Victoria throughout the spring designed to engage people in a discussion of consent. Consent is defined by AVP as being clear, communicated, enthusiastic, ongoing, the responsibility of the initiator and able to be renegotiated or withheld at any time. It is a mindful communication and involves respect between partners in any interactions, in which every person has autonomy over their own body. It is an absolute necessity in every physical contact, from hugging to kissing, to all sexual acts. If consent is not clearly expressed for any of these activities, or the recipient is inhibited from clearly making such decisions, then the initiator shouldn't continue. Consent is most often described as needing to be informed and enthusiastic. The first steps towards ensuring this is making sure that all parties involved have a clear understanding of the situation. Intoxication is a major inhibitor of this. If someone is too impaired to make a sound decision, they cannot give informed consent. A general rule of thumb is that, if they're too drunk or otherwise intoxicated to drive, then they are equally incapable of mindfully agreeing to sex. In this respect, it's always important to take the safer route. If it's not clear whether or not this individual is impaired, just don't do anything. Other factors necessary to look at involve the context of the situation. There are many potential power imbalances that can also prevent consent being given, such as if one of the people involved is a minor or if the initiator has any authority over that person. One must consider their own social placement and privileges. If the other person does not have a full comprehension of the situation, or feels in any way that they are being pressured to participate, then they are not fully consenting. The concept of enthusiasm may seem obvious enough, but it's important to emphasize that for sex of any kind to be consensual, everyone involved has to want it equally. This does not invalidate the consent of sex workers, as long as they are fully invested in going forward with the interaction for their own business purposes. Now, as is very relevant in the case of sex workers, it must be clear that just because someone agreed to an act before does not mean they are under any obligation to continue with it. Whether they were paid to participate, had a really good date, or even said five minutes prior that they wanted to, everyone has the right to change their mind and stop at any point. When initiating, always remember, no one ever gets to feel like they are owed sex for any reason. At the base of all these experiences is communication. Whether you're just about to start having sex or want to try doing something different, always ask first. And don't go forward until you get a yes in response. Maybe is not a yes. And no is not an opportunity for negotiation. The Consensual Project also recommends going further, to ask open-ended questions throughout, So instead of, can I do this? Asking, what would you like me to do? These steps aren't unsexy or tedious, they're safe, necessary, and will ultimately result in a better experience in which everyone is open about what it is they want or like. And will ultimately result in a better experience in which everyone is open about what it is they want or like.
0: Break free from boring ice cream with Cold Comfort. Cold Comfort is a small, independent ice cream company right here in Victoria, with over 400 different handcrafted ice cream flavors inspired by everything from local fruit to local beer. Curiously flavored and locally made, they've been doing whatever the hell they feel like since 2010. Head on down and treat your taste buds today. Check them out at www.coldcomfort.ca.
1: Welcome back to Taking Up Space. I'm your host, Anne Bernice Thomas. This episode features conversations on consent, body autonomy, and personal space. And I'm joined by Quinn, Tiffany, and Melanie. Okay, so before the break, we talked a bit about the importance of consent in relationships. This discussion about consent is something that people, they have to have super often. It comes up at the beginning of relationships, when conducting business, and even with friends. So How do conversations like these, conversations about body autonomy and consent, play out in your lives or your work?
2: I feel like it's a big part of my former work Mm. (laughs) than my current work, considering now I'm just a student. Mm. But yeah, like I I think I I said this before, but sex workers are really, really good at negotiating consent. Especially sex workers who specialize in kink and like BDSM and stuff. I don't know a whole lot about this, but yeah, it's... I don't know, it kind of interweaves the entire sex work community.
4: Which, yeah, and I think that's so important to name when often there is an idea that, or there's a myth that, like, all sex work is gender based violence and all sex work is rape. And that's, like, a position that's used by abolitionists to say, like, sex work should disappear. And so, yeah, consent is integral to the sex industry. And I think, depending on who you are and where you work, like, that can look really differently.
3: Yeah, I think for me personally, I feel like in terms of being sexualized by people or men just even walking down the street, um, it's something that I've encountered in my life for my whole life. And when I first started getting into burlesque, people would be like, oh, but now you're up there and Mm -hmm. like, you know, appeasing the gaze of, of men and women. But just like what do you like how can you say that it's okay to do that and then I feel like on a very real level like there's no discernment for me between like being on stage and you know whether I'm at a pool in a bikini or I'm walking on the street in a snowsuit like I encounter it everywhere I go constantly all the time and so for me to get on stage and put together a routine about something I care about for me is like one of the only places I've actually ever felt safe to do what I want to do because I'm doing exactly what I want to do. Whereas in in these other situations where I can be fully clothed and drinking a tea somewhere and then somebody is doing something that makes me feel extremely uncomfortable or is approaching me or even I've been sitting in a sauna meditating and someone actually comes up and starts touching me. Mm. And so I mean, these boundaries, I feel like within our culture are extremely skewed. And I mean, I can look at it through numerous lenses as to why, but I just try to come back to the overarching, just lack of of understanding of boundaries and consent, and just even a lack of like basic communication and respect for each other as human beings. I feel like it's where I'm at right now with humanity. <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. like, let's cut like if we cut all the labels, can we just connect on a human level? And I feel like that is extremely difficult for a lot of people right now.
2: Mm. And it's so powerfully healing to be able to choose when you're sexualized too which is like, like what you said with burlesque, like I felt the same thing when I was a stripper. I would be up on the stage, and I'm like, you, like I am going to decide how you are going to see me. This is the part of my sexuality you're going to see. You're going to pay me for it. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to go home and like put on some sweats and not be sexual anymore.
1: Mm-hmm. Awesome. So it seems like this conversation we're having is revolving mostly around consent. Now, consent is the most important thing in any relationship, be it intimate or not. Yet the idea of waiting for a simple yes or a no, uh, seems like a pretty simple concept. Why is it important to continue to talk about it?
3: I mean, I think Quinn brought up some good points in terms of colonialism, and I really feel like in terms of consent to even be on this land and coming to terms with the fact that this is stolen land and what that does in terms of like not only is it I feel like stolen land but people are really not well a lot of people are coming to terms with that but I feel like there's a very real large population that are not willing to actually admit that and I feel like when you don't really admit what's actually happened in this reality you're disconnected from the land and you can't really connect to the land here because you don't really know what happened and then that is like a circle and so you have the disconnection from the land you have the disconnection from ourselves as individuals and then disconnection from each other and the community and I feel like when you have all three of those then then it's like consent well what's consent like how do I even know what that means anymore because I'm like you know so disconnected from everything that is grounding and part of these systems that there's like yeah lack of awareness lack of boundaries and like where does something begin and something end and so then consent is like completely blurred and i feel like we're now kind of at this point where we're trying to build this culture of consent which is great but i've also seen you know within that there's just so much of a lack of understanding of boundaries that it's it's hard to articulate and navigate and i feel like really coming back to this almost cultural sense of us, like, being entitled to this land rather than acknowledging, like, what has really happened here is kind of then feeling this, like, entitlement to each other and entitlement for me to do what I need to do. And it's, yeah, a mess. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for saying
4: yeah. that. Um, I guess I'm also thinking about, like in a very plain way, why we're still talking about consent is that the frequency of sexualized violence and sexual assault is so high and impacts people of all genders, particularly women, feminine folks, two-spirit people, trans people, genderqueer people. So in that way, like consent is an alternative to rape culture and yeah, is a tool that can in some cases prevent violence from happening. And also, yeah, just thinking about as like an adult person, Mm -hmm. (laughs) The importance of like educating folks when they're young about consent yeah and like wanting to see more of that in the world and yeah
2: I think it's just a lack of awareness like it's just one of those things that we don't talk about enough even though we're already talking about it so much there always needs to be more because there's always more to talk about because there's like Smaller things we don't talk about, like, when you go to hug someone, how do you ask for a hug without pressuring someone? Or, like, hugging a small child, how do you know they actually want to hug you and they're not socialized to hug you? Because you're a big, scary adult, you know?
1: Tiffany, would you be able to speak uh, to how conversations about consent work in the sex work industry?
2: Obviously, there's no, like, formal classes that teaches you to be a sex worker. So when you learn to do it, um, it's very informal. Basically the first few times are kind of a mess with yourself. You're just kind of like, I'm going to ask for this and like let's see how this goes. But then as you keep doing it, like that's one of the problems with criminalizing sex work. Like obviously it's not totally criminalized here, but when you criminalize sex work sex work, you don't have this community of sex workers. And that's so important because there's such a mentorship. And when you talk to sex workers who've been doing it for longer, Um, They have so much good insight on just the smallest things, like even just like how do you get someone to wear a condom when they don't want to wear a condom, you know, like because normally you would just walk away or maybe you wouldn't, I don't know. But yeah, and then just like um, I used to be an escort, too, and you kind of like find your specialty within Mm -hmm. that field. So, I did some pretty vanilla stuff. So, I didn't really have to worry too much about like safe words and stuff, but occasionally I did. And that's how I learned was like having a client come in and like be like, I want to do this. And I'm like, okay, I'm open to this, but like, we're going to have to sit down for the first 15 minutes and be like, you can't touch me here. You can't say this. You can't do this or this or this. And then this is our safe word. Okay, go.
1: Perfect. Thank you for sharing that. That's really fascinating. So it's pretty clear that you all have a really great handle on what body autonomy and consent is. So how do you address questions about body autonomy that come up in your work and life? How do you want knowledge about consent to be passed on?
4: I guess I'm thinking about like um, supporting survivors or people that have experienced sexual assaults or harm. And how like, sometimes when you're supporting people, certain like, myths will come out. And perhaps people have internalized like some victim blaming themselves. And so just like affirming people's right to their own body and yeah, just like, it wasn't your fault. You get to decide what you, you do with your body and that didn't happen in that situation.
2: I also think we need to talk more about the intersecting identities that make you more vulnerable to sexualized violence. Like, especially I think we need to look at being a sex worker as an intersecting identity. Because of course, there's also race and indigeneity and gender, LGBT, but also when you're a sex worker, like you said, like there's all these myths and then there's these stereotypes. There's these stereotypes that you're always down to have sex no matter what with anyone, and you're just this like I don't know if I can say this, but you're a dirty, you know. So that makes you more vulnerable as well.
4: And like also that you're not rapeable, like if you're a mm. sex worker.
2: Totally, yeah. And that if you're paying for sex, like within that hour you paid for, you can literally do whatever you want to their body instead of it being um, a sexual encounter in which money is included in the negotiation of consent and is integral to that. But yeah, like you can still definitely rape a sex worker
4: (laughs) in case anyone didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) And you were talking, um, Tiffany, about also the laws and how the laws affect sex work and just like a concrete example is in Canada purchasing of sexual services is criminalized so people buying sex that's not legal and so for example for some folks working outside it's hard to negotiate consent before um, and have those conversations because yeah people don't want to be like quote-unquote caught um, buying sex and so then yeah the laws make it ultimately more dangerous for people
2: yeah it pushes it way underground and same with indoor sex too or indoor sex work you have to do it all online which means you've never met this person until they show up at your door Mm -hmm. or you show up at their door instead of having a place like a legal brothel or something where you can sit and chat with someone and if you get a weird vibe you can walk away without being harmed
3: And then I guess there's probably also support systems in place, in places like that, if things do get dangerous or things are becoming outside of those boundaries that were negotiated upon versus where we're at right now in terms of kind of going into you don't really know what. (laughs) And yeah.
2: Yeah. And then you have to be more secretive about it, too. And then the stigma, too, is so powerful like if you're if you're sexually assaulted as a sex worker, there's even more victim blaming, even more than if you were like a non sex worker who was like drunk and was sexually assaulted, even though like it's never the victim's fault, and I feel like I can never say that enough.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah um one way that I like to try to address or deal with these issues as you know someone that has been through a lot of sexual assault and abuse uh, is is to talk about it. And it can be terrifying, but I mean, the number of people that I've been able to connect with that wouldn't want to share their story, or for even myself, um, thinking that there was something wrong with me and that there was something to be ashamed and that everyone would abandon me if I spoke my truth. Mm. And I mean, I... I feel like that's also why a lot of the times people don't go to the police and it's just like a very, the culture that's been created around it has really, I feel like forced us to internalize our traumas and pretend that everything's okay when everything is really not okay. But I definitely feel like times are changing and there's space being held and people are being empowered to speak up and... Um, Something for me for why I never wanted to speak about it is because I didn't want that label. I didn't want to have to carry the word victim um, with me. And so I've really tried to work through that and, you know, create a different sense of myself, identify myself post that and to not get stuck in it because i feel like it can be really easy to be stuck in this like oh my god i am broken i'm never going to be able to be fixed or i'm going to be in therapy forever and and not seeing that you know there is light at the end of the tunnel that this is just a step that you need to move through and i feel like that is really important um because it yeah, especially through the context of, like, moving forward with your own romantic relationships and what that means when you've encountered um, this type of trauma and, and, like, how do you navigate that and how do you move through that with a new partner and and not being stuck in those past um, triggers that, you know, do come up and that it is possible to work through them because I think it can be so scary that you're just like, no, no, like, I can never go there again. And then, you, you know, you're also almost re-traumatizing yourself by not allowing that healing to occur, but again, I feel like our culture really doesn't hold that space because we're we're just in so many different boxes that that space is, is still being developed. Yeah. <laughs> so.
2: Something pertaining that that I've struggled with recently, too, is at what point is my fear protecting me from being re-victimized, or mm-hmm. is my fear preventing me from some amazing relationship, you know, because when you've gone through something you're so hypervigilant and you like, will see something that you perceive as a red flag, but you're like, but was that really a red flag? And then you're questioning yourself and that's why it's so important to have like a, a counselor or a therapist or something Mm -hmm. to be like, am I being crazy? I'm not being crazy, right? Like, this is okay. And yeah, and like, and then who do you trust afterwards? And it's interesting, you said the thing about not wanting to identify as a victim because like, I don't identify as either a victim or a survivor. And I don't know, there's no other words left to describe Mm. it, but it just, it doesn't fit. Because Mm -hmm. when I say survivor, I feel like I'm expected to be strong all the time. And, like, this has made me into this, like, really tough upper lip person or whatever, you know? And you can't cry about it. Yeah. You can't be
3: upset about it anymore. Yeah, which crying
2: is so important. But being a victim, like, I was a victim at some point, but I want to drop that and just be a normal person mm-hmm. who is carrying, I'm carrying trauma within my body, but that doesn't mean I'm currently being victimized, you mm-hmm. know?
1: Uh, I think the uh, point on how to have relationships again and moving forward and how to trust and who to trust is really important and interesting. And for me, I um, have a lot of like issues about autonomy as well, but for me, it's been a, a lot of women as the assailants. And so I have this weird ship of like women, I mean, I trust men maybe, like, a little too much. Honestly, I feel weird about that. <laughs> You're a weird <laughs>
2: feminist. I know, Like,
1: oh, uh, you've been better to me than women have. But I'm <laughs> still, obviously, still feminist. But, um, yeah. yeah, and it's, like, how how do you trust yourself? And it's, like, am I being too lenient? And am I being too harsh with you? And it's, like, why? And how do you bridge that gap again so yeah interesting questions i guess go to therapy i guess <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: therapy is always the answer therapy yeah. is so great so expensive though <laughs> so expensive yeah. it should
2: be like a human right like i think it should be yeah. covered under universal health care for sure yeah,
3: definitely especially
2: given how common trauma is mm. especially as like more women and then marginalized women you know so common
4: and yeah also a call for like therapy and counseling that's sex work positive totally that's really vital mm-hmm. yeah
2: i've had i've had therapists like where i walk in and i'm like oh no like i have to have this conversation again where i'm like trying to explain like <clears throat> yeah i'm traumatized and i have a lot of bad stuff to talk about but it's not working as a sex worker that has made me this way in fact i've found it to be very powerful in fact i had a client who had like a rape fantasy and i indulged that and i actually found that super liberating Mm. and it just opened up a whole new part of myself because the whole time i knew i was in control Mm -hmm. and it was like going through the motions of what had happened to me in the past but being able to tap out at any moment Mm.
1: That is super interesting. Right? Wow, yeah. Psychoanalyze that, right? (laughs) And thank you for being so
4: vulnerable. Well, everyone.
1: Thank you so much. We're going to take a break, and the conversation will continue when we get back. Up next is a spotlight on an event that happens across Canada. The Red Umbrella March is an event that brings attention to sex workers and advocates for workers' rights in the sex industry. That's coming up Stay tuned.
6: December 17th marks the International Day to End Violence against sex workers. On this day in Victoria, red-clad individuals march from Bastion Square to City Hall, carrying umbrellas that match the hue of their clothing. This group makes up the attendance of the Red Umbrella Day festivities, as supported by Piers Victoria, UVic's Anti-Violence Project, and UVic's Third Space. This event is held in support of sex workers and to raise awareness on the fight towards workers' rights for those in the sex industry. How did this event come about? Back in the summer of 2013, Vancouver's X Workers Solidarity Association of BC held the West Coast's first Red Umbrella March in congruence with similar events happening across six other Canadian cities for the National Day of Action. Dozens of participants joined the march from the Vancouver Art Gallery to the Pivot Legal Society, carrying red umbrellas and signs declaring sex workers' rights are human rights, among others. From a blog post on Triple X's website
7: What a busy day that day with the north lawns filled with Bangra performances and tents, and the south steps filled with Falun Gong meditators. And it was family day at the gallery. We couldn't have asked for better weather. Not too hot to start, then full bright sun during our march down Hastings Street, where bystanders joined in the parade and young men hung out the windows of the hostel hooting. A big, big thank you to everyone who participated and contributed and made it such a success.
6: One year later, Piers Victoria Resources Society held Victoria's first red umbrella march on December 17th, coinciding with the International Day to End Violence Against Sex Workers. Protesters and advocates walked from the lawn of Victoria Legislature to City Hall, where a free meal, presenters, and entertainment awaited them. The march has been an annual event since then, with attendants taking to the streets of downtown Victoria to raise awareness for sex workers' rights. Participants are asked to wear red, and can bring posters, signs, or red umbrellas if they so choose. Over the years, the event has attracted the attention of notable supporters such as Victoria councillors Marianne Alto and Charlene Thornton-Joe, Esquimalt Royal Roads MLA Maureen Karygiannis, and the Victoria Police Department's Chief Constable Frank Elsner. Why have a march for sex workers' rights? Pierce Victoria director Rachel Phillips explains.
5: Red Umbrella Day is International Day to In Violence Against Sex
4: Workers, and it's really important to have at least part of the events that we hold on that day be publicly visible because any violence against people in the sex industry is a community effort. It's not something that sex workers are responsible for or could possibly take on themselves. It has something that has to, on some level, permeate our whole community. It is a community responsibility.
1: You
6: can find out more about the Red Umbrella March and accessibility for this event by calling 250-388-5325, extension 101. To learn more about PEERS, visit www.safersexwork.ca.
1: Welcome back to Taking Up Space. I'm your host, Anne-Bernice Thomas. In this episode, we're talking about body autonomy, personal space, consent, sex work, and so many other amazing topics. I'm joined by Melanie, Quinn, and Tiffany. So as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, uh, those who come from marginalized social locations have to fight so much harder to maintain their personal space and body autonomy. So panelists, uh, could you speak on how your social location affects your understanding of consent and autonomy?
2: When I worked as a sex worker, well, my, these intersections still exist in my identity, but I noticed that these intersections um, affected me because I'm from like a middle upper class family. I'm white, I'm bisexual, and I have a disability. So I have like two marginalizing identities and two privileged identities that are core. With bisexuality, as soon as I came out when I was young, I felt hypersexualized and so doing sex work was almost like a way to capitalize on that hypersexual identity that wasn't really an authentic identity but I was I was used to carrying when it comes to class that was important because it changed the type of sex work I did and I felt more comfortable talking to these middle class to upper middle class or upper class men and I sound like a rich white girl all the time too, which is usually what they're looking for, Um, race, I could charge more because I'm white, which is just kind of one of those terrible things about the industry, it's very deeply racist. My disability, it meant that doing sex work as a job meant I had time to take off if I was having a bad day or something.
3: I I think it's important for me to bring up in terms of just my dating experiences and not being fully aware of my race and I feel like that has kind of been a story for me like I grew up in um, a white town and I actually thought for the longest time that I was white until people started being really racist against me and then you know I kind of tried to navigate that as best as possible but really still trying to remember that you know I am I am human and that you know maybe they just can't see me right now but what i totally disassociated from was when i started dating men and sort of their projections onto me which i feel like now that i look at it we're probably race based but at the time i just thought that that was you know my my duty to serve them and my duty to serve their needs and and now i think i'm deconstructing it and looking at you know the types of men that i was dating the classes that they were from and what the social expectations were, I can see now how much I didn't even believe that consent was part of it and that now, Realizing this and starting to heal from it and having the courage to speak up and say these things It's so interesting because it's completely the opposite of how I feel like I was programmed and what I was led to believe and so it's almost like this whole new reality that's like coming into play and that I am now trying to anchor into a reality that was like completely dominated by like the patriarchy in the sense of like really feeling that that was not my body and then now finally being connected to my body and listening to my body and like I actually will ask my body things because that level of being disassociated has been for so long that I did yeah no concept of it at all
1: all right well let's talk about community and consent more and more we're seeing marginalized communities advocate for autonomy for their members on a wider scale, it seems like society on a grandiose scale, when we're looking at sex works rights, when we talk about court cases of sexual assault being thrown out or abusers going free, this scale of society not really embracing consent as this important issue it is. So, in your opinion, uh, what is the role of community when it comes to healing and thriving in a society that doesn't support autonomy?
2: Community is everything. You can't thrive without community. Self-care as a concept exists within a community. You know, you need those people to check in with because we don't live in a vacuum. If you're trying to survive and heal while walking alone through this patriarchal society, you're not going to get anywhere. You need those people to tell you as much as it takes that it wasn't your fault and things are going to get better and you're still like a valid, beautiful human being. And yeah, like what do you do without that, you know?
3: I also think it's really important to sort of look at the system that we're in. And I feel like a lot of people call it like the system is broken. And I I see that and I believe that, but I also heard this argument the other day that actually the system is working exactly as it was designed to work. And I think that to actually accept that how this country was built in terms of the lack of consent, the lack of boundaries, and just the complete disconnection from the truth foundationally, how this country was built, that it's it's hard then to have healing spaces I- in place, and that until we start really seeing the truth, then, then we can really start anchoring the new systems that need to be built and created to really allow communities to survive heal and thrive because I feel like a lot of communities like they're getting by but there's just like such a massive amount of trauma that um, needs to be that people need to be given like the proper healing tools spaces time um, to heal what they need to heal and not not have this like guilt shame layer put on top of it all and so I feel like A lot of it comes with just like starting to see where we are as a society and as a culture and once we can start actually seeing things for what it is instead of like believing this this system that's been created that quote unquote is serving everybody because i feel like on a lot of times in terms of like people that are marginalized are the ones that start seeing the the holes in the system but until like everyone really starts waking up and seeing like oh Yeah, you know, even though I may have not been wrong by the system, my friend was. And I feel like it's happening more and more now. And so people are starting to awaken to it. And it's great. I just feel like in terms of trying to fix the system, like, I feel like that's not really possible. It's more of like, how do we anchor the new system? Because the system is functioning exactly, exactly how it was designed to function. It's terrifying.
4: So, yeah, I guess at Peers, we're a nonprofit that I would say is yeah grassroots and community-based and so this question feels just like very obvious or integral to our work and yeah I think because of um as Tiffany's mentioned the stigma associated with sex work it's so easy for people to be disconnected from each other and to just feel like so much guilt and shame and if people have needs, like, not getting those needs met because of stigma. And so, yeah, creating spaces that are, like, for current or former sex workers is just so important and, unfortunately, is, like, really rare. And so, yeah, just, like, across this country known as Canada, sex worker organizations are, like, really integral to communities.
2: Yeah, peers is so important because communities like peers and nonprofits that run like peers um, are rare and it's also so important for sex workers who have been victims of sexualized violence to have these places where before you even walk in the door you're like this is a safe place and they're not going to judge me or like misrepresent me at all.
1: Perfect. <laughs> Thank you so much for your answers. We're nearing the end of our time so is there anything you'd like to end with? Any last comments for our listeners?
3: I guess in terms of boundaries, um, from what I can speak on in terms of not being aware of boundaries, you know, because of being sexually assaulted and stuff and having that sort of distorted, I think then when you try to navigate the healing of where these boundaries are uh, and then continuing to attract unsafe people into your space, it almost then made me feel anyways that this was just like a reality that was going to keep happening over and over again because the same people would keep being attracted to me and I feel like you know on a energetic level like it was like because of what has happened and I had not healed it this kept coming to me until I would have the courage to let that go but it was almost like my mind was so distorted that it actually felt good that these people i was actually attracted to and i actually really cared about them and really loved them a lot and it wasn't until i started actually through a breathwork session that i really connected with the abuser uh, my first abuser that i was able to see what they saw when they went to abuse me and like what they took from me and that control Mm -hmm. that was taken away from me then since that experience i've been able to connect with like well, how much forgiveness I have for myself because I did turn to substances. I did turn to, you know, disassociating from things and realizing like, yeah, I did that because that was messed up. Like that was really effed up and and that's okay. And that is how I chose to... to get through that tough time and then now coming to this place of like okay so how do I reassert my boundaries and not keep facilitating the same um, circle and through counseling and really just connecting and asking my body and seeing how although my mind was programmed to think that that was love and that this was something positive my body my body knows what my mind you know can't Possibly know, and so connecting with my body and and seeing how my body feels about it before making these decisions that I feel like have been programmed and that are just almost triggered by these people that don't don't treat me appropriately. But I'm still trying to discern what is safe and what is unsafe. It's like, yeah, it's like being a baby all over <laughs> again. <laughs> but yeah,
4: one thing I wanted to bring up is when thinking about body autonomy and the intersection between yeah body autonomy and sex work we want to like push back or resist like savior narratives or rescuing narratives that like focus on trying to save sex workers from like the evils of the work and instead like honor people's self-determination and and also yeah just like supporting them where they're at and for some people that's helping them leave sex work and find other parts of work and for some people that's like helping them stay in the work and, like, do it in, like, better ways for them. So, yeah, focusing on rights, not rescue.
2: I would just say again that if anyone out there listening is a victim or survivor of sexualized violence, or you're like me and you don't identify with either of those terms, I just want to say that your trauma is valid, and whoever you choose to heal is totally valid. It doesn't have to be psychiatry, therapy, and pills. It can be a combination of that a combination of some of that and nature-based healing or cannabis therapy or I don't know, there's all this weird stuff out there. Crystal healing I've heard some people do. Anything that makes you feel better is valid.
1: What a great spot to end this conversation. So that concludes our panel for this episode. Thank you so much, so so much to Tiffany, Melanie and Quinn for coming in to speak with us today. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to Taking Up Space. Rate us, leave us a comment, or review the show at www.cfvpodcasts.com or wherever else you get your podcasts. This program was produced by myself, Alba Clevenger, Anna Pollard, Kevin Hammond, Viva Lessard, Rosa McBee, and Max Collins. Our theme music is composed by Arcade Palette. This episode was created by CFUV's production team. If you want to be a part of making amazing programs like this one, head to cfuv.ca to learn more. Taking Up Space wouldn't be possible without the generous support of our friends at Cold Comfort and the Community Radio Fund of Canada. Today, we'll leave you with more information about peers, the outreach and advocacy group Quinn is a part of. I'm Anne-Bernice Thomas. This is Taking Up Space. We'll catch you next time.
7: Imagine the experiences that some of our city's most vulnerable people confront. Close encounters with strangers, especially strangers who often have a physical or socioeconomic upper hand, can be dangerous. They can be violent, abusive, and scary. Sometimes you just need someone to talk to who understands exactly what you're going through, because they have been there themselves. This is how Peers Victoria was started in 1995. A group of women met up at the Downtown Women's Project and agreed that there was a need for services for sex workers, for a safe space to go and get support, a place where you wouldn't be judged. At the core of Peers is to have people reaching out who have lived and worked in the industry. Who better to offer a non judgmental, client centered service? where people get help with what they personally need help with and create a plan to achieve their goals. Back in 1995, the group became known as the Prostitutes Empowerment Education and Resource Society, PEERS. Originally, it was a support group for women wanting to leave the industry, but evolved to be a place where anyone in sex work could go who needed care and support. Eventually, in 2009, PEERS Victoria Resources Society was born to reflect the change in language, as prostitute was no longer an appropriate word to use for sex workers. Though the group mostly serves women, they also have resources for men and trans people in the industry, and are always looking to expand who they can help. As more people learn about PEERS, by using their services and contributing to the organization, PEERS helps advocate for human rights and social justice for all because they believe that everybody deserves rights and benefits no matter their occupation, age, gender, race, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status. They believe that sex workers should not be stigmatized as stigma makes it harder for workers to be safe in their industry. The more stigma there is, the harder it is for people to go for help whether they're going to a police officer to report a violent offender, or to a friend for guidance. A big part in striving for social justice is to understand the effect of colonialism in Victoria and the world. Peers Victoria acknowledges that they are working on the unceded territories of the Songhees and Esquimalt people, and they want to understand the connections between colonialism and other forms of structural violence. We can see this at play because many Indigenous people in the sex work industry face even more violence than others. PEERS wants to be part of the movement that addresses these specific issues. PEERS offers a bunch of different services. They have outreach workers who provide medical care and also help sex workers get access to housing, food, income, and find social support groups. They focus mainly on helping people with HIV, AIDS, and HCV, and other health problems. In addition to their drop-in center, Piers has its night outreach program. Every evening, two support staff walk around Victoria giving out harm reduction supplies like needles, crack kits, and water, clothing and health and safety information, and whatever else is needed. Driving around town in their van, staff talk to people who need help and try to keep sex workers safe and healthy. As an effort to teach the public about the diverse experiences of sex workers, Piers started an initiative called Hashtag Stories. They feature different voices of sex workers in Victoria. According to their website, the purpose of this series is to challenge the stereotypes that exist about sex workers, and in the process start to tackle the stigma associated with the work. Human beings lead diverse, complex, and contradictory lives. Sex workers are no different. They say that they hope Sex Work Stories gives you the chance to get to know a few of them. Here's an excerpt from Cyrus's story.
8: I'd prefer not contributing to the stereotype that most sex workers come from dysfunctional childhoods, but unfortunately, in my case, it's true. I was 14 years old when I came out to my family. It was the first time I ever saw my father cry. This was on a Saturday. By 11.30, the following Monday morning, I was disowned and committed to the Lakeshore Psychiatric Hospital. I started running away at least 3 or 4 times a week. I was discovering myself right along with the gay scene in downtown Toronto. I'd stay out all night partying. Then, around 6am, I'd roll onto the grounds. I'd ring the bell and when someone came down to open the door, I'd push past them saying I was hungry and tired. I was on the subway one morning on my way back to the hospital after a night of disco dancing when I met a guy who told me I could make good money as a hustler. This man told me exactly what to do. I was supposed to walk into a hotel lobby like I owned it, sit down and wait until someone sat down beside me and dropped their key on the floor so I could see their room number. They'd walk away, I'd wait for 5 minutes, and then meet them in their room. I didn't even make it back to Lakeshore that day. I got off the train, crossed the platform, and within minutes I was walking into the Royal York Hotel. I did everything I was instructed to do, and, to my shock, within minutes there was a man sitting beside me dropping his key on the floor at my feet. I would spend my life working both the streets and escort services. I worked all over the US and Canada and even spent two years in Central America. To be a prostitute, one needs to know who they are to understand why they're doing what they're doing. I never understood the emotional repercussions until it was too late. When I started selling sex, I thought I had finally found what I was missing. It took me years to realize the difference between desire and love, years to understand where that line is drawn.
7: You can check out more of these stories at safersexwork.ca slash sexworkstories. Peers also help sex workers get access to affordable housing, and they provide small business training programs. They also keep track of bad dates, that is, a list of people who've been violent against persons in the sex industry, and work with the police to follow up. For more information about Peers, go to safersexwork.ca. If you want to contact someone about health support and outreach, Send an email to health at peers.bc.ca or call 250 7690 For the night Outreach Group, you can email them at outreach at peers.bc.ca or call 250-744-0171. If you have inquiries about housing and community support, contact them at housing at peers.bc.ca or call 250-388-5325, local 105. And lastly, if you want to know more about the Small Business Training Program, contact them at admin at peers.bc.ca, or call 250-388-5325, extension 110. The Peers Drop-In Centre is open to everyone, but priority will be given to past or current sex workers. Peers is located on number 1-744 Fairview Road, Victoria. They can be reached at two five zero three eight eight five three two five from 11 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. Mondays to Thursday. If you want to learn more about the sex industry, they have a great page called Sex Work 101 where they have lots of different terms explained and they discuss myths and stereotypes of the industry and explain the laws around sex work. Check that out at safersexwork.ca slash sex-work-101. Visit their website if you want to use the peers' resources, learn more about the sex work industry, or donate to the organization. That's www.safersexwork.ca. Cold
0: Comfort is an ice cream store with a conscience. Crafted by ethically paid employees using local, organic, fair trade, and natural ingredients, Cold Comfort offers high-quality, guilt-free ice cream. Ice cream is for everyone. They make dairy-free, vegan, and sugar-free options, as well as gluten-free ice cream sandwiches. Now that's some ice cream I can get behind. Find out more at www.coldcomfort.ca.